It was 1678 when one of the most significant works of theological fiction ever written was published. I'm, of course, referring to The Pilgrim's Progress, which was authored by a man named John Bunyan. And if you're unfamiliar with his work, well, it'll help you to know that The Pilgrim's Progress is the world's most famous allegory, which is primarily about the progress being made by a born-again believer named Christian, who, after leaving the, the, the city of destruction, continues making his way to the celestial city, And yet, unfortunately for him, the pilgrim's progress is constantly being hindered by many diversions and distractions. And yet, despite all of the difficulties, Christian continues to move forward in faith until he finally reaches the celestial city. If you've never read the book, I encourage you to do so. But as we consider this incredible work of fiction, there should be no doubt that the pilgrim's progress is actually an allegory about the process of sanctification that takes place as every born-again believer continues to walk by faith with our Savior and as we're being perfected by faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, as we continue to make our way to the so-called celestial city, the pilgrim's progress ought to be evident in our lives as we continue to accomplish our calling in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And listen, as the church engages in this journey together, we also begin to bring pure progress to the community that surrounds us. And in this way, Jesus actually helps us to achieve pure progress while we're headed uh, towards you know, the, the finish line of faith. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the way that Paul encouraged the Christians who were there in Thessalonica to help him bring pure progress to the Gentile world that he was attempting to reach. And as we make our way through the text before us today, we'll begin to see, first of all, that pure progress includes our profession. Secondly, pure progress includes our protection. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that pure progress includes our perfection. With this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Here we find Paul. He's beginning to conclude this incredible epistle. And as you make your way to the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul rounded out the second chapter of this book with several words of encouragement. He began by assuring them that they were believers who were beloved by the Lord. And then in our study last week, he took the time to remind them about the core of Christian courage, which stems from the spiritual help of the Holy Spirit, the scriptural hope of God's word, and the sacrificial heart of our Savior Jesus. Well, now here in our text today, we find Paul. He's presenting the original recipients of this epistle with a prayer request. He presents them with a prayer request, and with this as the focus, I want to pick up our study of 2 Thessalonians, beginning here at chapter 3. If you'll look with me there, beginning at verse 1, there Paul declares, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, 
we find Paul, he's asking the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica to pray for them. He's asking for prayer, and as we consider the content of this prayer request, it's important for us to remember that Paul and his traveling companions, they were preparing for their third missionary journey. Yeah, they were about to head back out from Antioch and and go back out on on another uh, missionary journey. And knowing that they were bound to once again face opposition and the persecution of angry unbelievers, Paul asked his believing brethren there in Thessalonica to pray for them so that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified as they made their way back into the Gentile world. Now, In order to better understand Paul's prayer request, we should take some time to consider what he meant when he referred to the word of the Lord. What is he talking about uh, regarding the word of the Lord? Well, just to be clear, it's important for us to understand that there's a distinction between the incarnate word and the written word. There's a difference between the incarnate word and the written word, which, which Paul and his companions were heading out to preach. And listen, When we speak of the incarnate word of God, we're referring to the physical embodiment of the Logos, who is our Savior, Jesus. And when we refer to the written word of the Lord, we're referring to the scriptures that actually reveal the identity of our Savior, the incarnate word. To sum it up with simplicity, it'll help you to know that the Holy Spirit was sent to inspire the written word of God, which is recorded in the scriptures, so that we can have a relationship with the incarnate word who was sent to save us. And with all of this in mind, we can see then that Paul was preparing to preach the written word so that the people who heard it might place their faith in the incarnate word who was crucified and then resurrected for our salvation. Uh, Well, with this as the goal, Paul asked the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica to pray for them as they prepared to preach the written word of God, pointing people to the incarnate word of God throughout uh, the, the Gentile world. Well, now that we've made this distinction between the incarnate word of God and the written word of God, we should take a closer look again at Paul's prayer request. And so let's take another look here at the first verse of this chapter. There Paul declares, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. Now, i got to stop right here and, and confess, I had to do a deep dive on this because I've never run swiftly in my life, and so I didn't really understand what this meant. Now, the, the phrase run swiftly, it's actually translated from a Greek word which was used of runners who were exerting themselves in an attempt to win a race. And in the context of this prayer request, Paul was using this word metaphorically in reference to the rapid propagation of the gospel message, which is accomplished through the preaching of God's word. When we go out and preach God's word and people come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's how the word of the Lord runs swiftly by, uh, by, uh, through the propagation of people coming to Christ. At the same time, Paul also asked his audience to pray for the magnification of God's word. <clears throat> if you would look with me again there, Beginning at verse 1, here again Paul declares, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. Now that word glorified, it might be better rendered manifest, that the word of God may be manifest, or the word could also be rendered magnified. And in light of this definition, we can see that Paul was actually asking for prayer 
so that they could go out and magnify the message of our Messiah as they preach the gospel of grace to every unbeliever. And listen, Paul was so impressed with the way that the Christians there in Thessalonica had magnified the message of our Messiah that he actually used them as a standard for how the scriptures ought to be spread. I want to consider how he put it there in verse 1. Here again, Paul declares, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Just as it is with you. In other words, Paul's asking them to pray for them as they went out to magnify the message of our Messiah. And not only that, but to pray for the people who would possibly receive this message. He's asking the Christians there in Thessalonica to pray for the people who might be receptive to the word of God in the same way that they had been receptive when the word of God was brought to Thessalonica. And not only had the new believers there in Thessalonica received the word with an open heart and all readiness, but they were also believers who were willing to then turn around and preach the gospel. They were ready to endure persecution in order to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's saying, hey, you guys are the example. You received the word, you turned around, and then you began to repeat the word, you began to preach the gospel, and that's what we want to see happening in the rest of the Gentile world. Unbelievers coming to faith in Jesus Christ, becoming believers who then turn around and go out and take the message into the world so that others might become believers who are making more believers and making more believers all the way to 2023 Austin, Texas. As we consider the way in which the Christians there in Thessalonica were magnifying the message of our Messiah, we must not fail to realize that every society where the word of God is being preached... And every culture and community where the message of the Messiah is embraced, well, those people end up enjoying the benefits of pure progress. In order to prove my point, let's take a moment to consider the way in which the Christian church has helped to bring pure progress through the profession of the gospel message. And just to be clear, I'm referring to the pure progress that occurs within the society that embraces our Savior according to the truth of God's word, and then through the process of sanctification begins to enjoy pure progress as the Lord pours out his blessings on those communities. The, the proof of my, my point here, well, it's actually seen in every society where the proclamation of the gospel has propagated people of faith and listen, in, in every place where the message of our Messiah is magnified, the culture of that civilization begins to enjoy the blessings of pure progress through the good works of the church. And I'll give you just a few examples. This is just a few. This is just scratching the surface of this conversation here. You know, most of the founding fathers of, of modern science were those who professed faith in Jesus Christ. That we wouldn't have modern science as it is today had it not been for the founding fathers of modern science. Many of them believe that they were just trying to understand how God did things, how God made things, and these sorts of things. And so modern science stems from people who professed faith in Jesus Christ who were trying to understand the mind of God. 
Not only that, but listen, almost every university and college founded in the U.S. and in Europe until the mid-19th century were founded by believers who were interested in raising up educated Christians who were able to profess their faith. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that we would have the education system that we have uh, apart from you know, these Christians who really started the education systems. And listen, the majority of our hospitals were also founded by believers where medical care was overseen by those who were placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And like I said, this is just a scratch on the surface of all the benefits that we now enjoy because born-again believers tried to you know, engage in, in the, the, the pure progress that the Lord pours out uh, by faith in him. And, and in light of these things, we can be certain that the society that magnifies the Messiah will also enjoy the blessings of this pure progress that comes from our profession of faith. Conversely, it's those who claim to be progressive who are actually now leading us back into the bondage of spiritual blindness. For example, you know the people who embrace the progressive political movement? They preach freedom, but they're leading us back into tyranny. They preach freedom, but they want more and more government control over everything. They claim to believe in science. You'll see the signs in their yards. This house believes in science. And yet they also think that a surgery can turn a boy into a girl and a girl into a boy, despite the fact that no chromosomes are affected by the surgery. They preach equity while encouraging racially segregated dorm rooms on college campuses and graduation ceremonies. They demand tolerance while simultaneously insisting that all Christians are closed-minded bigots. This is not progress. This is you know, just complete regression back into spiritual bondage. And to sum it up simply, those who are promoting progressivism, politically speaking, are actually leading us into the bondage of spiritual blindness. And the proof of my point can be found in our failing economy. It can be seen in our crime-ridden cities and the homeless crisis that impacts every major city now. And, and, and let's not forget, mental illness is at an all-time high and more and more churches are being led astray by apostate preachers. And, and with all of this being the case, it's crucial for Christians to realize that the only hope that we have for saving our society is by becoming believers who are publicly professing the word of God as we magnify the gospel message of our Messiah. That's right, it's the message of our Messiah that brings pure progress. And therefore, we should go out and profess our faith in Jesus so that our culture and our society can once again enjoy the benefits and the blessings of our Messiah. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 10. It's verses 14 and 15 where he asks this question. He says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there at the church in Rome to realize that the Roman Empire was filled with unbelievers who had yet to hear about the gospel of peace. 
And knowing that Jesus is the only hope that any society here in this world actually has, Paul encouraged the believers there in Rome to go, to go out and profess their faith in Jesus Christ by preaching the gospel of peace. Do you want peace in this world? We need to go out and preach the gospel of peace. And as we preach the gospel of peace, we're helping people to understand the glad tidings that result in what kind of things? Good things. Do you want to see good things here in America? Well, we need to preach the the message that will bring about those good things. We need to magnify the message of our Messiah through the profession of faith because this is the basis for the pure progress that we want to enjoy here in our country. This is the pure progress that changes our lives. And listen, the the more people whose lives are changed through this pure progress, well, that impacts the culture, that impacts our, our society. If you think putting one guy in the White House is going to fix anything, you're fooling yourself. We need a culture of Christians who are professing their faith in Jesus Christ, magnifying the message of our Messiah so that more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ, the society has changed, the culture has changed, and the political system will follow. And so we need to go. How will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless Christians are preaching and professing their faith in Jesus Christ? Well, this brings us to our second point, because listen, I'm sure we all recognize that the more we profess our faith in Jesus Christ, the more we're going to be persecuted. And here's the good news. Pure progress includes our profession of faith. And at the same time, pure progress also includes our protection from the enemy as the Lord guards us uh, against those who want to destroy us. And with this as the focus, let's continue to make our way through the text before us today. And so look with me again here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to back up and begin reading once again at verse 1. It's there where Paul declares, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's assuring his audience about the way in which the Lord is able to deliver his people from angry unbelievers. And just to be clear, that word deliver, it not only refers to the way that we oftentimes receive pizza, but that word deliver is also translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are rescued. Deliverance speaks of rescue. It speaks of being set free from the enemy. And knowing that they were, these people were heading back into the Gentile world, you know, Paul and his team, they're, they're about to head out from Antioch to the, on, on their third missionary journey. And they knew that they were going to discover and come across unreasonable and wicked unbelievers. And so Paul was asking the Christians there in Thessalonica to pray for them as they set out to spread the good news. They asked for prayer so that they could be delivered from those who would ultimately persecute them on that trip. And to further explain my point here, let's consider the unreasonable unbelievers that Paul was concerned about. That word unreasonable, which is found there in the middle of verse 2. It's used of those who are irrational 
and inflexible. They're irrational, meaning they're not thinking correct thoughts. And they're inflexible, meaning they're not willing to consider the fact that they're being irrational. The unreasonable unbeliever is a senseless scoffer who rejects our Savior and without good reason. They use illogical arguments for why they reject Jesus Christ. And what's even worse is that many unreasonable unbelievers also become so obstinate in their rejection of Jesus that they become angry activists who are determined to persecute those who are preaching the word of God. And and this is the group that Paul refers to as being both unreasonable and wicked. Notice again there, uh, starting again at verse 1, Paul declares, Finally, my uh, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Now, when Paul referred to these unreasonable men as also being wicked, he's letting us know that they're not only irrational, but they're also immoral. They're irrational and they're immoral. They're unethical people. And as we consider everything the Bible says about those who are wicked, we quickly learn that wicked people are prideful and boastful and are constantly bringing forth iniquity. They, they, they're constantly producing sinful things. And, and not only that, but the wicked people are, are those who renounce God. And, they, and they're not just satisfied with renouncing God. They also want to persecute the people who profess faith in Jesus. And according to Paul, the reason for their angry antagonism is due to the fact that they don't have Faith. Notice again, there at the end of verse 2, Paul declares, For not all have faith. Now, as we consider this statement, I want to take a moment to ask, you know, are there people who actually have no faith? Is that what Paul means, that they just they have no faith in them at all? Or was Paul referring to unbelievers who are exercising their faith in their rejection of Jesus? So in other words, is he simply just saying that not everybody is a believer? Well, with this question in mind, I want to take a moment to remind you that the Greek word, which is translated faith, it simply refers to a belief or a persuasion or a moral conviction that something is true. So are we going to say that unbelievers aren't able to believe something is true? Well, well, I would never say that. Of, of course, unbelievers are able to believe or be persuaded about some sort of conviction that something is true. That being the case, it doesn't make much sense to say that unbelievers don't have faith, but rather that unbelievers are placing their faith in something other than Jesus Christ. And listen, I mean, we, I could talk you know, for hours and hours about the faith of unbelievers and what they actually believe in, but let's just get down to the, the, the smallest uh, group here known as atheists. Let's just consider the faith of atheists. Now, I realize that most modern atheists will say, I don't have the faith to believe in God. That's the modern argument, not, not just uh, there is no God, because they know that they can't defend that. And so... The modern atheist says, I don't have the faith to believe in God. And yet I would argue that it takes more faith to be an atheist than it takes to be a Christian. You see, Jesus has told us 
that the Christian just needs faith the size of a mustard seed, which is a very, very small seed. The Christian doesn't need a lot of faith to believe in Jesus. Why? Well, because there's so much evidence for why we should believe in him and and, and in his resurrection. So we just need a little bitty mustard seed-sized amount of faith to, to believe in Jesus Christ. The atheist actually has to have a great deal of faith. And the reason I say this is because, first of all, they have to believe that nothing blew up and became everything. I don't know about you, but I can't believe that. And I get it. Some will move the problem, you know, backwards a little bit with the steady state theory and say, well, you know, there's multiverses and continuation, you know, of, of you know, this universe in, in some sort of steady state thing. And well, you have to eventually end up with the beginning of something. Otherwise, we'd never arrive at today. If matter is infinite, then we would never be able to get back to the beginning of matter, which would never, you know, allow us to get to today. And so we know that doesn't make any sense. So you have to end up some, at some point in time with no matter, and yet no matter, they still believe it. I don't have that kind of faith. I don't have that kind of faith. There must be an infinite God who created everything. That's much easier to believe. And listen, the atheist is the person who ultimately has to believe that the disciples faked the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then went on to suffer the painful death of martyrdom all the while knowing that they were dying for a lie and could escape certain death by just recanting. I don't have enough faith to believe that any group of men would ever do such a thing. So it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. And and so with that, I have to assume that atheists are filled with faith. I'm guessing that 90% of their being is just faith because that's a great deal of faith to believe in these sorts of things. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist because atheism is entirely irrational. And at the same time, it takes a great amount of blind faith to then reject the gospel of grace. And the reason why is because of all of the evidence that actually supports the Christian faith. With all of this in mind, when, you know, listen, when, when Paul tells us that there are those who don't have faith, what he really means to say here is that there are those who refuse to place their faith in Jesus Christ. So he's basically saying that there are unbelievers out there who are unreasonable and wicked. And with that being the case, listen, it was not only true of Paul's day and age, but it's also true today. And we shouldn't be surprised when unreasonable and wicked unbelievers attempt to stop the servants of the Lord from bringing the pure progress of the gospel to those who are within our sphere of influence. And knowing that there will be those who are trying to stop this progress, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord is able to protect us. I want to consider again how Paul puts it here in verse 3. If you would look with me at the beginning beginning of verse 3, there Paul declares, The Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Now, uh, here in this verse, you know, Paul Paul is talking about uh, the, the Lord and his faithfulness, right? And that in contrast to the lack of faith or the unbiblical faith of, of unbelievers, right? So Paul is saying, hey, there's people who don't believe this, and yet the Lord is still faithful. Their unbelief isn't going to affect the faithfulness of our God. The Lord is still faithful. 
And so he's assuring the hearts of the Christians there in Thessalonica by reminding them of the fact that the one they've placed their faith in is faithful, and isn't that nice for us to know? We're not going to wake up tomorrow and discover that God was unfaithful to us. The one we've placed our faith in is faithful to accomplish everything that he's promised, and this includes the, the finishing of our faith. This includes completing the work that he began in us. And we'll learn more about that in the third point. But listen, this promise also includes the protection that he's going to provide for those who are traversing the path of pure progress. Notice again in verse 3. Here we learn that the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Now that word establish... It's translated from a Greek word which which speaks of the stability that comes from strength. And strength certainly comes or or provides the person with stability. So how much more will spiritual strength from our Savior provide us with spiritual stability? Our Savior has promised to strengthen us so that we can stand with him in spiritual stability as we you know, face off with the enemy. And, and not only that, but he's also promised to guard us. And, and that word guard found there in verse three, well, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who keep watch over others specifically for the purpose of pres- uh, preserving them and protecting them. What this means is that the Lord has promised to protect the pilgrims as they make their way uh, progressing forward. On the, on the path of purity. And, and listen, this is not to suggest that the Lord is going to spare us from the pain of persecution. It means that he's going to protect us in the midst of it. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 15, verse 20. There Jesus declares, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, They will keep yours also. Christian, listen, those who set out to serve our Savior as we magnify the message of our Messiah, well, we're going to suffer persecution. We're going to suffer persecution. And, And at the same time, the Lord has also promised to protect us and deliver us from unreasonable and wicked unbelievers. You might be thinking, isn't this a contradiction? He's going to protect us, but he's going to allow us to be persecuted. Is this a contradiction? Well, I want to assure you that it's not. And to prove my point, I want to remind you that the Lord allowed Daniel to be thrown into the den of lions. But was he consumed by the lions? No, instead, Daniel took a catnap. Or, or, you know, chilled out in, in the lion's den once he realized that the Lord had closed the mouths of the lions. And he wasn't lying about it. But uh, so this also reminds me of the way that the Lord delivered Paul from his persecutors. And with this has the focus, I want to consider the testimony that he presented to Pastor Timothy. So hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, I just want to take a moment to remind you of the way that Paul had been persecuted throughout the days of his uh, missionary journeys. Uh, You know, throughout all three of those journeys, you know, Paul was being persecuted. And Paul actually provided us with a long list of the ways that he had been persecuted. He was beaten with many stripes, even above measure. And he was cast into prison, you know, more often than Trump. And, you know, despite, despite all the ways that he had been persecuted, 
the Lord continued to protect him. In the midst of the persecution, the Lord protected him all along the way. I want to consider how Paul describes it here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look with me there beginning at verse 14 because here he declares, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Incredible. And from this, we can see how the Lord allowed Paul to suffer persecution at the hands of unreasonable and wicked unbelievers like Alexander the coppersmith. And yet, it was there in the midst of the persecution where Paul realized that the Lord Jesus was right there to strengthen him and guard him and, and, and deliver him from these unreasonable, wicked unbelievers. The Lord didn't stop him from experiencing persecution, but rather he protected him in the midst of it. And even at his first trial, Paul looked around for his friends, for his traveling companions, and no one stood with him. There was no one there to stand with him and support him in the midst of this, and that's where he realized that Jesus was there with him. And the Lord Jesus was there to strengthen him in the midst of that trial. And he learned how the Lord protects us even in the midst of persecution. And so rather than allowing the fear of persecution to stop us from moving forward on the path of progress, I encourage you to remember that the Lord is there with us, that the Lord is able to provide protection to those who are walking by faith with him. Now remember, the word of God is filled with promises of persecution, promises we wish weren't there, like Like in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's verse 12 where Paul declares, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, it's my guess that no one has this cross stitched on a nice fluffy pillow in their living room. You probably don't have a Precious Moments doll that has this verse on it or anything like that. I've never seen a, a painting, you know, at the Christian bookstore that has this verse as the, as the theme. And yet there it is. And there's many verses just like it that promise persecution to the people of God who are traversing the path of pure progress. And as we consider this verse, there are many Christians who think, well, maybe I'll just stay right here where I am. I don't want to move forward on this path because there's persecution. And yet I assure you that the Lord will be there to protect you even when there's persecution. Those who travel the path of pure progress are going to be persecuted and yet we can be certain that the Lord is faithful. Do you believe that? The Lord is faithful to establish us and guard us from the evil one. And with that being the case, 
we can be confident as we move forward on the path of pure progress. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, pure progress not only includes our profession of faith, and pure progress not only includes our, uh, the protection that we, we receive against the enemy, but pure progress also includes the perfection of those who are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And with, with this as the focus, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Here we find Paul. He's commending the Christians there in Thessalonica. And I want to take another look, beginning at verse 4. Here Paul declares, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now here in this verse we find Paul, he's once again commending the Christians there in Thessalonica. And the reason why is because he had confidence concerning their walk with the Lord. And just to be clear, you know that word confidence, it's actually translated from the Greek word pithio, and, and, and this is actually a primary root which then uh, you know, is, is used for the, the word faith, which is found there in verse 2, and faithful, found there in verse 3. Now the, the root of faith and faithful is this Greek word, which actually speaks of a, a confidence or a persuasion that something is true. And what this means then is that the confidence of Paul was actually a persuasion of faith. His confidence was a persuasion of faith. And it's for this reason that the scholars who created the Bible in basic English, they render the beginning of verse 4 in this way. And we have faith in the Lord about you. This confidence was a faith. We have faith in the Lord about you. And as we consider this again, listen, Paul was not placing his faith or his confidence in the Christians there in Thessalonica. He didn't say... We have confidence in you. No. He says we have faith or we have confidence in the Lord about you. His confidence wasn't in Christians. His confidence was in Christ Jesus and in our Savior's ability to perfect those who are on the path of pure progress. And in light of his example, we'd all do well to realize that those who put their faith in flesh will have a faith that fails. If you put your faith in the flesh, if you, if you put your faith in your flesh, you'll fail. If you put your faith in this flesh, listen, I pray to God that I never stumble and fall, but I've seen many pastors stumble and fall, and the people whose faith were in those men, well, their faith failed when the one they were trusting in failed. Do not put your faith in men. Or women, do not put your faith in the flesh. Do not put your faith in your flesh. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He will never fail you. Those who put their faith in the flesh will fail, but those who keep their confidence in Christ Jesus will be perfected on this path of pure progress. To further grasp my point, let's take another look there at verse 4. Here Paul declares, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Notice, Paul here is placing his faith in the Lord because he knew that the Lord was able to help the Christians there in Thessalonica who themselves wanted to become obedient believers who were accomplishing the will of the Lord. At the same time, we must not fail to notice that it's, it's the Lord's will for them to, <clears throat> to do the things that they were being commanded to do. 
just to be clear, that, that word command, as we talk about the things that they were commanded to do, that word command found at the end of verse 4, it's translated from the Greek word, which was used in reference to a message transmitted from one person to another. And simply put here, Paul here is providing the believers there in Thessalonica with the spiritual instructions that they needed so that they could become believers who are being perfected on the path of pure progress according to the will of the Lord. At the same time, he was trusting in the Lord to help those Christians to travel the path of pure uh, perfection here, knowing that the Holy Spirit was the one who was sanctifying them and empowering them to keep moving forward by faith. Listen, it's in similar fashion that the Holy Spirit will also help us to follow the instructions that we now find in the Word of God so that every born-again believer can be perfected as we move forward on the path of pure progress according to the commands or the instructions that we've received in the epistles. With this as our goal, we should consider Paul's perspective, uh, which is found in the instructions that he presented to the church in Philippi. And so if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And as we make our way to the third chapter of Philippians, I just want to take a moment to point out that the path of pure progress, well, it's going to be filled with many difficulties and distractions as the Holy Spirit continues to sanctify us and perfect us. Much like Christian in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, Many of us have already been captured by the giant despair. And now we find ourselves imprisoned in Doubting Castle. Others have been distracted by Vanity Fair, where entertainment and carnality capture the hearts of many Christians. Then there are those who are following the flatterer who's leading us towards the delectable mountains. And let's be honest, Who doesn't want to dwell in the delectable mountains? But yeah, as we make our way towards the celestial city, you better believe that the enemy is going to place in our path many distractions and many things that will derail our faith and lead us astray so that we stop moving forward on the path of pure progress. Without debate, the path of perfection is filled with these distractions that have caused many to stop moving forward, caused many to even begin backsliding. And with that being the case, I want to consider Paul's perspective on these things. It's found here in Philippians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 12, here Paul declares, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's quickly confessing that he wasn't yet perfect. And and some of us might have a hard time hearing this, you know, I I certainly do. I, 
I'm a, I'm a Paul fan through and through. I, I, Paul's one of my favorite authors. And, and, you know, to hear Paul say, not that I'm already perfected. And it's like, what? Hold on a second. Paul's not perfect? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to hear this. I, I read Paul and I, and, and, I, and I see how the Holy Spirit used him to, to create these epistles. And I just want to think, man, he had it all together. And yet Paul is saying, no, no, I still struggle. And knowing that he was still a work in progress, Paul decided to set his sights on the celestial city so that he could keep moving forward towards the finish line of faith on this path of pure progress. And at the same time, we must not fail to notice how Paul also informed his audience that every mature believer will have the same exact mindset. Notice again, Philippians 3 verse 15, he says, let us, as many as are mature, Have this mind. And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Well, what's the mindset? That we aren't perfect yet, but we should keep moving forward on the path of perfection. And those who want to traverse the path of spiritual perfection must realize that we can't change the past. I can't change all the things that I did in the past. I can't go back in time and undo things that I've done along the way. And so why would I allow allow my faith to be derailed by these distractions? And why would you go back and play the past over and over and over again in your mind, all all the while failing to move forward in faith towards the finish line? If you think the mistakes of your past will keep you from being perfected tomorrow, I pray that God will help you to see that that's not true. We already have enough issues going on today. There are already enough things happening in the world today that would distract us, let alone the things that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or whatever. Let's quit worrying about the past. Let's quit being distracted by the enemy's distractions today and let's press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And as we move forward in faith, the Lord will help us to deal with every distraction as they come. He will help us to overcome them so that we can continue to be perfected on the path of pure progress. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, it's important for us to remember that true progress is defined by the Lord. You don't get to define the path of pure progress. I don't get to define that path. The world around us certainly does not have the, the, the wherewithal or the wisdom to define the path of true progress. And yet this doesn't stop them. I mean, the world is filled with progressive politicians and pundits who are trying to convince us that real progress, real progress is about abortion rights. Real progress is about transgender activism. Real progress is about open borders and social Marxism and credit scores and and these sorts of things. I encourage you to realize that the Lord is the one who has provided us with all of the divine instructions that we need, which helps us to understand the best plan for achieving pure progress. The Lord has defined this path. 
And so rather than taking our cues from a carnal society that would lead us onto a path of regression, let's instead look to the word of God for the clear instructions for how we can move forward by faith on this path of pure progress. Now, with this as the goal, it'll help you to remember that pure progress involves our profession of faith as we go out and magnify the message of our Messiah so that the society around us might also uh, take, you know, follow us down that, that same path. Pure progress also includes the protection that the Lord provides to those who are walking by faith with him. And as we move forward and find ourselves face to face with unreasonable and wicked unbelievers, you know, they might try to persecute us, but the Lord is going to protect us. And finally, pure progress also includes the perfection of those who are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we move forward in faith, the Holy Spirit will continue to perfect us as he sanctifies us for our benefit and for his glory. With all this in mind, I encourage every believer, let's remember that Christ Jesus is calling us all to move forward. If you've stopped moving forward, if if you find yourself suffering from an arrested state of, of spiritual development, I encourage you, it's time to get moving again. It's time to set aside all the, all the distractions. It's time to leave Doubting Castle or Vanity Fair or wherever else you got stuck along the way. It's time to get back to moving forward in faith to the finish line so that Christians can continue to traverse the path of pure progress. Let's pray.